welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 12. For you new people here, anyone, and, and for you not so new people, Uh, We've set up the communion elements in the back. We do communion as a family on the second Sunday of the month. Uh, Every other Sunday, we're going to set up the elements there. Please partake. Uh, It's for everyone. Before we get into our message today, I have a a test for you. Question, maybe might be called trivia even. There's a prize, so if you answer correctly, you'll get a prize. What is the most commonly or frequently named city in the Bible? Jerusalem. Who said it first? Okay, several of you? Okay, you get a bowl of chili right after church. What is the second most named city? No. Babylon. You get a donut. Good job. Okay, here's the hard one. The third most commonly named Jericho. <laughs> I get the prize on that one. No, I didn't. I Googled it. So, In 2005, I, had, I was blessed to be able to go to Israel. And um, it, it was a radical experience for me. And I know many of you, not many, some of you have been. And, and it changes the way you read the Bible, the way you see Scripture, the one that, especially in the Gospels, not just the Gospels, but just throughout the Bible, when you go to the places that are named in the Scriptures, it just brings them to even greater life. I believe the Bible. I was a pretty strong believer. I was a pastor at the time I went, and so I, you know, I kind of believed, you know, right? You, you expect me to believe, right? But I go there, and I could see these things, and it just, it just almost as if made the scriptures 3D. It, it put context, it put color, it put texture to the scriptures for me. It was, a, it was a radical experience. One of the cities you end up going to was Jerusalem. If you go to Israel, you almost always end up in Jerusalem. As far as cities go, it was pretty unimpressive. It's not a huge city. It's not a glorious city. It's not beautiful. Archaeologically, it's, it's fascinating. But spiritually, it was life-altering for me. Amazing experience. As I walked the very streets upon the same stones that Jesus may have walked upon. As I went up on the Temple Mount 
and, and stood in a place where Jesus may have preached some of the messages we see in Scripture. As I, as I walked through the garden where they believe he spent his last night praying, as I, as I went into the garden near where they believe he was entombed and had communion, it was just this radical experience. As I walked in to a tomb that is near that garden that was empty and reminded me of the resurrection of Jesus. It was a radical, radical experience. But just looking at the city, you would wonder why things are falling down, why the world has such strong feelings about it. Why is it that, that so many are opposed to or antagonistic toward or hostile toward this place? Now, there is a simple reason, and the reason is because God chose Jerusalem. In 1 Kings eleven thirty four, 34, it says, And to his son I will give one tribe, and that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I, God speaking, have chosen for myself to put my name there. Because God chose Jerusalem as, as the place where he said his name would be, where he would dwell with his people, God's enemies hate it. They want to control it. They want to destroy it. Why is the world so hostile toward Jerusalem and ultimately to all of Israel and to the Jews? Is because God chose it, and God chose them. And God's enemies hate that, hate that. Jerusalem can easily be described as the hub of the wheel of God's plan of redemption for this world. Everything is going to focus on that. As, as the world moves toward the end of God's plan to redeem mankind, which it, it is going to come to an end eventually, all focus is going to be more and more and more upon the city of Jerusalem. We're going to pray, and then we're going to look at this city and what God says about it, and some other pretty fascinating things in this chapter. Let's pray, and we'll get into that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here and we pray, Lord, as we, as we take this time in your word, that you would open our heart and mind to receive what you to say, would say to your church. As you have this special heart toward the city of Jerusalem, and while we may not ever fully understand why you chose that place, we, we just acknowledge you did. And because you did, we should we should think of it and, and feel toward it as you do. And I know we're in a church where most of us have, we, we, we do stand with Israel. We do believe that, that the Jews are your chosen people. But Lord God, we know that you've got, you've got a bigger plan for them than what they are experiencing right now. And so I pray that you would open up our hearts to see that. But not just that, Lord God, but even, even as we, as, as New Testament, as, as New Covenant believers, need to understand that there's a connection between what you did and said to the nation of Israel and what you've promised to us as well. And I pray that you'd help us to see that clearly today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In chapter 11, um, the 
prophet was given some pretty hard things to say about the leaders of the city of Jerusalem and the, and the, the nation of Judah, and, and referred to them, in essence, as bad shepherds. You know, that they, had, they, were, they were falling down on the role that God had given them to shepherd the people of God. And they were taking advantage of them. And, it, and, and that text pointed us to the good shepherd, to Christ. Now, Zechariah was used as an example in that text of a good shepherd and to, and to predict hundreds of years in advance how the people of Israel would respond when the good shepherd showed up, when Jesus came. And one of the ways is, is, is in the description of, of, how, of how worth he was, how much he was worth to them, and that was 30 pieces of silver. I, can't, I cannot read or think about that without my, just, my stomach churning. That they, they, they had the Savior of the world in their hands, and he was only worth 30 pieces of silver, which was literally almost nothing. It reminds me how much we ought to value and esteem and, 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 and not to forget that that's the way the rest of the world feels about him, but we must feel differently. He must be worth everything to the whole world and beyond to him. From a human perspective, we might think that after all that Israel did to the Messiah, that he'd be done with Israel, he'd be done with Jerusalem, and he would just let it go. But that's not that's not what God's plan is. Though this first verse here kind of gives us a a sense of things are not going to go easy for Israel. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the Lord, burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. A burden is not a good thing. When, when there's a, the burden of the Lord is spoken, it's always a, a, a message of judgment or doom. And so, you know, you know the burden of the Lord on, on Moab or, or, you know, this place or that place, it's always a message of judgment or doom. And so we have this message here speaking to the nation of Israel, to Jerusalem, and we think, okay, wait a minute, I, th- I, thought, I thought God had a good plan for it. Well, hold on, hold on, we'll get, we'll get to that. Just don't, don't, get, don't get ahead of me. You know, on my Tuesday morning Bible study, they're always getting ahead of me. I'm trying to share something. Oh, I know, I know that one. Well, hold on, let me get to it. They're like three verses ahead of me all the time. I'm not mentioning any names. I almost did, but I won't. (laughs) Their response to the Messiah, Israel's response to the Messiah, which was ultimately to reject him as a nation, not all of them, obviously some people received him, but as a nation they rejected him, was going to cost them something. Before he tells them what is coming, I love, what, I love what the Lord does here. He gives them his credentials. Chapter 12, continuing. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. God reminds them of who he is and what he's done before he tells them what he's going to do. Right? That makes good sense. 
You know, if you want to know what I'm, if I'm going to say something that I'm going to do, you probably ought to look at what I have done to give you a sense of that I am able to do that. And he, and he starts, who stretches out the heavens. Now, if any of you are into astronomy and have seen the James Webb telescope images, they're, they're unbelievable. You know, they, they put this new telescope up there, and they're seeing things they've never seen before. They're looking further out into the universe, and they're seeing that the, the universe is, is vastly larger than they imagined before. And I, you know what my first thought is? I can't, well, I can't wait until they build a stronger telescope. And you know what they're going to find? The universe is bigger yet. God created a universe that is so vast that humans will never, and I mean that, never be able to measure it. Why? Why? Well, because if God can create that so vast that humans cannot measure it, what can't he do? He wants us to think, look up into the stars and to see further and further and further and just marvel at how big God is. Because he's big enough to do that there's nothing in your life that he's not too big to deal with. Nothing. The other side of that, if you're into microscopes, every time they build a stronger microscope, they find something smaller. And you know what will happen if they build a stronger mi microscope? They'll find smaller things still. I think it goes both ways. I think, I think we'll never see the end of how small things are that God created or how big the things are that God created. He is in all of it. There's nothing so small that he doesn't see it in your life. There's something, nothing so great that he can't handle it. That always makes me happy. I, I just marvel at those things. But also as he forms the spirit of man. Well, what does that mean? That means, that means that the, the reason why you're alive is because God created both your body and your spirit. Now, we have a belief in this church, that that happens at a specific moment in time. We could, you know, we could, we can argue the very, very specific moment of time, but I believe at the very least, that happens at the moment of conception. At the very least. We can even say that it begins at the moment God thought of you. When did he think of you? Before the foundation of the world. You get a bowl of chili too. <laughs> Before the foundation before he laid the foundation of the earth, he thought of you. Creation, your creation, goes far beyond that. We're alive because God made us. And he put a spirit in us that was created to worship him, to be drawn to him. Now, if God can do that, he can do what he says next. Verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Excuse me. Zechariah lived in the second, sixth century before Christ, so roughly five, six hundred years before Christ. Islam didn't come into existence for hundreds of years after Christ. All the nations around Israel are Islamic. 13 centuries before Islam was founded, God predicted the conflict that exists today 
between Israel and the nations around her. Part of the consequence of rejecting the Messiah is that she would be surrounded, Israel would be surrounded by her enemies. But God has a plan for that because he has a plan for everything. He would make those nations, he would make, he would make Judah and Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness. The nations, if you really spend some time and look at what's happening in relation to Israel, the way the, those surrounding nations relate to Israel, they are acting to them in ways that are irrational. It doesn't make sense why they would feel and act the way that they do, almost as if they are drunk or on drugs or something. It's not rational. It's not logical. Israel is this tiny little nation. But it will lead to their destruction. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. As God prepares the world to experience judgment for its wickedness, for hating him, for rejecting Christ, for the hope of salvation, he's going to cause them to focus on Jerusalem. Now, one of the promises God made to Israel, to the nation of Israel, that if they would worship him, if they would worship him alone and follow him and obey his commandments, that they would never have an enemy that could touch them, that they would always be protected. Unfortunately, they did not do what God asked them or told them to do. And so they're going to experience the consequences of that, but not forever. Verse 3. And it shall happen in that day, that's a key phrase, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. All nations of the earth gathered against Jerusalem. It says, in that day occurs seven times in this chapter. Seven times. When we're studying the Bible, we want to look for those repeated phrases because they say something to us about the context, about what it's trying to communicate. In that day, especially in this context, always refers to the end times, the times at the end, the time prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. The demonic hatred, and that's what it is, the hatred of Israel is a demonically influenced hatred will drive them to try to eliminate Israel. But God won't let them be annihilated. I don't know if you've ever, you know, Kelly and I will sometimes will watch some of the, you know, the country vet shows, right? Just stuff, something that's not horrible on TV. And invariably, some dog will come in with his mouth full of quills, right? You ever seen that? Anybody ever, ever watched that? It's a terrible thing. You know, the poor dog, his mouth is all filled because what did he do? He saw a porcupine, what did he want to do? He wanted to mess with it. Either he wanted to kill it or he wanted to just mess with it, but they bite it and what happens? They end up at a vet, you know, unconscious while they're yanking these things out of their mouth. Now we as humans, we have the sense to say, you know what, there's a porcupine. Okay, 
I see it, I'm going to stay away from it because it's got things on it that will hurt me. Dogs don't think like that. And I, and I would say that's what we see going on with these nations around Israel. They see Israel as something they want to attack. They want to, they want to bite it. But there's going to be a consequence for them. Now, none of us would grab a porcupine with our bare hands, right? Would, would any of you do it, right? No. Good job. You get a donut after church. <laughs> the consequence is more severe than that. He's saying the consequence of this hatred that these nations have for Israel is ultimately going to be judgment eternally. Now, now this hatred is fueled by Satan himself. We've got to remember that Satan, Satan wants to sit on a throne. That's what he's always wanted. Not always, but at least at some point in history, he wanted to sit on a throne, and a very specific throne. Isaiah 14, 13 through 15 says this, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like most high. Yet, the consequence of that attitude, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Satan wanted God's throne. God said, uh, no, occupied, and said, no, you can't have it. And so what is, what is, what is Satan going to do next? Well, he's going to go to the next place where he can put his throne. And we know he's actually going to try to do it. There's a, point, there's a point in time, if we read the book of Revelation, where he's going to try to set up a place of worship to himself right in the heart of Jerusalem. When the Jews rebuild their temple in the end times, he's going to, he is going to, he's going to put up an image to himself and demand that the whole world worship him. But for that to happen, the Jews have got to go. They have no place for the Jews, for Satan. Satan, they're, they're in the way. So he's going to turn all nations against Israel. If you do a study of the United Nations and all the resolutions the United Nations passes, Israel has more resolutions passed against it than any other nation on earth. It's it for that tiny little nation trying to mind its own business, been around for, you know, 70 some odd years, is always being harassed. But it's not going to work. Verse 4. In that day, there it is again, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. This whole chapter, as well as the next two chapters, are referring to the last days, the, the time leading up to the second coming of Christ. And just as, as God has done 
many times in history, many times in history, God has supernaturally delivered the nation of Israel. He's going to do again. We're going to see that as the, as the end times. Actually, we, we may actually be gone by then. God may take us out of here before he, all that interesting stuff starts happening. But he will supernaturally deliver the nation of Israel from her enemies. Even though the world will, will converge on and try to attack Israel, God won't let it happen. Zechariah 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The nations will come against Israel. God will protect them. And there's always a consequence for fighting against God. Does that make sense? If you fight against God, you should expect a consequence. You should expect it to cost you something. Verse 9. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. I shall seek to destroy. Do you think if God seeks to do something that he can do it? The answer is yes. If he seeks to do something, it is going to happen. Which of the nations is he going to destroy? All. All of those nations that come against Israel. You know, we, we as Americans ought to, ought to encourage our leaders to stand with Israel, right? I mean, that, that's, that's motivated self-interest there. We don't want God to be against our nation, right? I mean, does that make sense? I mean, should he destroy it? Uh, yeah. I mean, we've done enough evil in this nation that deserve the destruction that could come. But we could also, and, and, and next Tuesday, vote, 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 please vote. We have an opportunity. We can't change the whole world. We may not even be able to change anything, but we can at least do something that might lead toward change, toward positive change. Do your part. If you reject God's gracious offer of salvation and turn against him or against his people, you have to face his judgment. That's the only option that there is. And all these nations that come against Israel, there's going to be a consequence. Haggai 2.11 says this, I will overthrow, this is the Lord speaking, I will overthrow the, overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Is God capable of destroying all of the nations that turn against Israel? Well, he created the whole universe, right? I mean, a universe so big, he put, the, he put your very spirit in you. There is nothing he can't do. And you've got to understand, as we're talking about judgment, we've got to remind ourselves, God doesn't want to do that. That's not God's desire to judge. He'll do it. His desire is grace and mercy and compassion. God wants to do good toward these nations. But if they persist in rejecting prophecy, prophet, truth, scripture, after, over and over and over again, there's a point where God's patience runs out. His grace is eternal. His love is eternal. But his patience is not. There's a point where he says, okay, that's enough. But there's a way. 
There's a way to escape all of that. And the Bible says there's only one way. John 14, 6, you all know this verse probably. Jesus speaking, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You know, the, the reality of the Jewish nation right now, we, we, we talk about the Gentile nations, okay, we understand they're far from God. They don't want to have anything to do with God, most of them. But even the Jews, most of the Jews are far from God. You know, they don't have, they don't have they, you know, they're, they're atheists. Great many of Jews are atheists. And the ones who seek God do so, but they want nothing to do with God's Son. Unfortunately, John 2, 23 says this, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Father has all the Son has the Father also. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. You can't have one without the other. You can say you worship God, but if you reject Christ, then you, you don't have God. You don't have the God of the Bible. You don't have salvation. You can't have salvation if you reject Jesus Christ for who he said he was, who is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. Whether you're Gentile or Jew, there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. You know, it, it, it ought to make us sad, because we're going to get to a text, I think it's next week, where we talk about what the consequence is going to be for the Jews. That, that we should have the same heart for the Jews that God does. God loves them. He chose them. He wants them all to be saved. But you can't have God without Jesus. You can set up a temple. You can do the, you can do the animal sacrifices, which they eventually will. It's not going to make a difference. It won't make them right with God. Even if they do those sacrifices perfectly, even if they do find that red heifer, that perfect red heifer, it's not going to be enough. But God will make a way. In Zechariah 12, 10, continue on. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. The people of God must receive the Son of God, and that is only possible by the Spirit of God. And so God is going to pour out his Spirit on the people of Israel. Now, again, we're talking about the end times. And this is very specifically talking about the end time, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes and he defeats all of his enemies, and at some point he is going to present himself to the Jews. And maybe in something like on the day of Pentecost, when, out, when the believers were gathered together in that room and the Spirit of God descended upon them as in tongues of fire and they all spoke in prophecy in foreign tongues, maybe something like that is going to happen. When the church was, in essence, born, that there's going to be this outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people. Now, I can't say that absolutely that's how it's going to happen, but something's going to happen and the people of Israel, the Jews that are, are still alive at that point, are going to believe. The Spirit will open their heart to the truth. And in verse 10, continuing, Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves 
for a firstborn. They will look on him. Look on me, whom they pierced. Now the Apostle John tells us who that refers to. In John 19, verses 34 through 37, then one of the soldiers pierced his side, Jesus hanging on the cross, the soldier pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, and he who has seen has testified, he who has seen is John, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you, you, may believe, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken, and again another, scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. As Jesus is hanging upon that cross for your sins and mine, that soldier pierced his side. And those standing there looked upon him and saw him. But that wasn't the only time they looked upon him. We're told later, as he presented himself to Thomas, he told Thomas, here, look, look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Ew, ick. But he still bore those in his In his resurrected body, his glorified body, he still bore the marks of his sacrifice for you and me. And you know where else he'll bear those marks? In heaven. For all eternity, he will bear the marks of his sacrifice for you and me. But there'll become a day when the Jews will look and they will see They will see their Messiah. They will see Jesus. They will see him whom they pierced. And then they'll know. They'll know that he is the Messiah. But that's not all they'll know. They'll also know that they are guilty, not only of having him crucified, but of rejecting their Messiah. And their response is universal. Chapter, or verse 10 again. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there should be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the valley of Megiddo and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. This mourning this great mourning is a result of their recognition of great sin. It's not a mourning of despair, but a mourning of repentance. They know they're guilty. They're guilty of great sin against God. God who has done so much for them. As we look at the nation of Israel, God has done so much for them. For millennia, thousands of years, God has been with them and protected them. In the next chapter, we get to see a picture of God's forgiveness and and cleansing. God has this glorious future for the nation of Israel. But first, he has to open their hearts, and he has to heal 
them of their sins. In Romans 11, 26 and 27, looking to that day, it says, so all Israel will be saved. How much? All Israel. When Jesus presents himself and they look upon him whom they pierced, they will mourn. They will repent of their sins and be saved. How many of them? All of them. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God has made an eternal covenant with the nation of Israel. Eternal covenant. Cannot be broken. Cannot be broken by the Jews. Won't be broken by God because he never breaks his covenants with anyone. He will save. It'll be a glorious day when the Jews look upon him, Jesus, whom they pierced. Well, how about us? How about you? Either here or online. It wasn't just the Jews who nailed Jesus to that cross. It was your sins and mine. Our sins nailed Jesus to that cross. The Bible tells us that he died for the sins of the whole world. Not just the Jews. God has a special place for the Jews. He has a special plan for the Jews. And it's a glorious thing. But he's also called all of us to repentance. When Jesus talked with Thomas after the resurrection, he said this in John 20, 27. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands and reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus will forever bear the marks of what he did to save you. What he did to save me. He was pierced so that you, so that we could be forgiven. And this last part of this, of this chapter speaks of, of people mourning by themselves. It's a call to personal, individual repentance that, that, we, that I cannot be saved because Kelly is saved. I cannot, I cannot be saved because John is saved. I, I, can't, I can't ride along on his coattails and say, well, because John is saved, I'm okay. I, I can't be born into a family and say, I'm saved because my family, my, my parents are believers. Or I go, to, I go to Calvary Chapel, French Valley. I must be saved. Wouldn't that be nice if it was that easy? You have to repent. He was pierced. Jesus was pierced. He died on that cross so that we could be saved. But to be saved, we have to believe. You got to believe that what he did, he did for you. Individually. And there's a call to repentance. There's a call to acknowledge the reality that I am guilty and worthy of the punishment that he took for me. And, and, and understand that he did that so that I don't have to. If you've done that, then when you look upon him whom they pierced, you should rejoice. I am forgiven. 
And if you have not, then your sins are not forgiven. And that's not a good thing. Judgment is coming. Judgment will eventually have to come to this world. God will not allow this world to continue like this forever. Now we pray that there's time for us to see a great revival to take place in this world. But if it doesn't come, we need to be ready. Judgment will come to this wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. And to escape that judgment and to have the blessed hope of a glorious, eternal future, we need to look upon him who was pierced for our sins. Let's pray, and we'll ask God's Spirit to speak to us right now. Heavenly Father, we do come and thank you for the grace that you do pour out to us. And Lord, as we, as we prepare to leave this place and then to celebrate as a, as a church family and, and to enjoy the chili that I can smell very well from up here, Lord God, we... we we recognize that while it's, it's, it's wonderful and, and great and amazing to be a part of this, this church family, what's really important is to be a part of your family. And we do that through faith in you, through looking upon him whom my sins pierced. And, I, and I, Lord, as I, as I think and I, and, I, and I dwell upon that thought, it causes me to, to look into my own life and heart and see if there's anything in me. As David would say, search my heart, O Lord, and show me my iniquity. If there's anything in me that doesn't belong there that I might be free from, that I might repent of it. Lord, maybe there's someone here who has never repented, never turned from their sins, never received you as their savior, Lord, that's your desire. Lord Jesus, you came. You allowed them to crucify you so that they could be saved. To escape the judgment that must come, not just to this world, but to every single person in it. And Lord, we can be free of that. We can experience the glorious eternal future of hope in heaven with you. Simply by believing and receiving. So Lord, if anyone's here and they've not received you as our Lord and Savior, I pray, Lord, they would do it right now, that they would simply turn to you, recognize they are guilty, and nothing they've ever done will be good enough to be forgiven of that. The only thing they can do is to believe what you did for them. And so I pray that they would receive your offer of salvation right this very moment, to be ushered into the family of God. Whether they're here or they're watching online, I pray, touch their hearts right now, Holy Spirit. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, that we would seek you with our whole heart, that we would regularly look upon you, Jesus. Look to you for our strength. Look to you for hope. Look to you for our everything, Lord God. That you would be our all in all. And that through you, we would go through this life. Not just to get through it, but Lord, to be one of your ambassadors, to be, to be used by you that others might come to know the hope that we have 
I thank you for these, your people. I pray for your blessing over them. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bless us in our time of fellowship. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you all. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.